Kia ora and welcome to the Female Career Podcast. My name's Anna Johnston and I work as a leadership and career coach for women. I'm looking forward to sharing with you an inspiring collection of career stories of a diverse range of women of Aotearoa New Zealand. I hope that by listening to these stories, you'll feel inspired in your own career. If you do enjoy the story, please head along to our website, thefemalecareer.com, where we have lots more stories of wonderful Kiwi women and their careers. We'd also love you to subscribe to our podcast so that you have all the episodes at your fingertips. And please do tell your friends and family about it too. For now, though, I hope you enjoy listening to this career story. So I'm really looking forward to speaking today to Stacey Morrison and hearing more about her career journey. Stacey's an experienced broadcaster, having started her career as a TV presenter on long-running children's TV show What Now? Since then, she's hosted and worked on a range of shows, including My Time, Showstoppers, Seven Sharp, Fano Living, and It's in the Bag. She's also experienced as a radio host, having had roles on My FM, Flavor, Classic Hits, and the Hits Drive show. More recently, she's become an author, publishing many titles to support people, especially families and children, to learn te reo Māori. She's also very involved in the community and is an ambassador for the New Zealand Breast Cancer Foundation, as well as for Water Safety New Zealand. I'm really looking forward to hearing about her varied career today. So tēnā Stacey, and thank you very much for joining me. Tēnā Anna, thank you for inviting me. Lovely. The first question that I had, I was really interested to understand when you were younger, maybe even a child, what were you thinking about in terms of your career? I was thinking of being a lawyer because there was a show called LA Law and it looked really cool. I mean, I guess also at school, I was known for having a strong opinion. And so that's what I thought being a lawyer was like. I found out eventually that quite opposite from broadcasting in some ways. I mean, obviously they have to be good communicators, but law kind of takes simple things and makes it quite complicated when you're at the law school studying stage. And our aim in broadcasting is to take complicated things and make them simple. So I guess that's where I liked the idea of being a lawyer. Lovely. And as you say, really interesting that contrast between early aspirations of law and then actually moving into broadcasting. So what then encouraged your interest in, in moving into TV or into the world of broadcasting? I think I was moved into it in a couple of ways. First of all, at Aranui High School in Christchurch, I was in the drama group and we were doing theatre sports and we were seen by the What Now team and they asked us to audition. So from there, I kind of had this accidental career that really was led by my love for drama and performing which was nurtured by really great teachers. David Chambers, one of the standout teachers of my life. So I guess that has been a natural but unplanned kind of move in my life career-wise. And then from there, from high school, it was up to me to make the link to actually, you know, having a full-time job and staying in broadcasting and then building the career that I have. But I guess the other impactful element there is that my dad, James, is is still in radio, actually. So I guess having someone in my family that did that job, probably, you know, at a subconscious level, it tells a young woman and a kid that's something that people in your family do, you know, that it's actually possible. Whereas I know for a lot of people, the barrier with broadcasting is just trying to imagine themselves being in such a public facing position is is quite hard. Mm, I can imagine having that that family link. It also probably makes it more real, actually. What does this job look like on a day-to-day basis? You can imagine what it's like. Yeah. And then talk me through the first few years of your career. What were some of the highlights, but then also the challenges? 
When I was at high school, one of the challenges was that rather than working at McDonald's or having a part-time job at school, my job was being on TV. Thinking about the fact we didn't have social media then, it was quite high profile and quite weird. And you know how teenagers react and to each other. Like sometimes it can be a kind thing and sometimes it can be just drawing attention to yourself that you don't necessarily want at that age. So uh, quite early, learn to navigate all of that. And luckily, I think it means that I don't place much ego on this job. And it's funny because people either do know me or they have absolutely no idea who I am and they make a point of saying that, say, I don't even know you. I don't, have never watched anything you do. And I go, well, it's okay. I don't know you either. It's fine. So I guess that practice of understanding what it's like to be a bit public was quite early, but I also knew about public and private. And yeah, you need to make some decisions around that and what's going to work for you and what works at any particular time. So anyway, that was my part-time job, an odd part-time job really for a teenager and it could have ended there. But I went on exchange to Japan. I learned Japanese. uh, So that was actually my second language uh, after English. I couldn't speak Māori at that stage. And that was impactful because it made me understand that I did want to learn my own language, being te reo Māori is my ancestral language. And so anyway, I came back and I went to the University of Canterbury to enrol. But actually after this huge experience I just had in Japan, I wasn't ready. So I've thought I have to have a really good excuse if I'm not going to go to university now. So I contacted What Now and I basically hustled and asked for a job and I got one and it meant I had to move to Dunedin. And I started working for TaylorMade Productions, now very well known because of Sir Ian Taylor. And from there, I started working with people who had been to broadcasting school. I was only 18 years old, but I was working with veterans, like amazing people like Peter Hayden, and I got to travel the country. So it was a really special and, and fortunate way to get into broadcasting. Yeah, absolutely. But interesting as well about the the trip to Japan, which I didn't know, and that, that actually was almost the first formative experience of, of learning a language. Yeah, fascinating. Mm. And you've worked now, obviously, for many years in broadcasting, some TV, some radio. What do you enjoy about the different formats? I'm often asked that, actually, and especially earlier when um, when we didn't do so much social media and just videos that just go up and are more instantaneous. The thing I love about radio is how instantaneous it is and that it's uh, interactive. It's happening right now. It gives a pulse of your day and the nation at the time. So that's really relevant at a time like this. Each of us in different formats of radio have a different job to do. So for some, it's to impart all the information that people need. For some, it's an escape for someone who's tuning into us. They don't want to have 24-7 COVID information because we're all just learning how much we can actually take in at any one time. And sometimes it's it's too much to just stay with your head in that news game all the time. That's one thing I love about radio. And then with TV, what you see on the screen is the result of a huge um, production behind it. So if you think about an aeroplane, you might from the front, you only see the pilot and and the co-pilot, but actually from behind them is all this big machine that's making it all work. So with television, I guess, you know, obviously different craft of making sure that your pictures tell a story and that what you're saying adds to that, but ideally doesn't repeat it. So that's one good thing about 
radio, you're building a picture in people's minds. In television, you can see that picture. Really, I like the contrast there that you talked about, that kind of radio being that in the moment, really current, whereas actually the very carefully prepared storytelling nature of TV and there. And probably the, I can imagine that contrast doing a bit of both is, is really nice for you. Yeah, and they complement each other, actually. Yeah, I can imagine. And then tell me a little bit more about your journey into becoming an author, your journey to learning te reo. Yeah, well, both of those things are interactive and with my TV career as well, because when I moved to Auckland, I was going for two jobs at the time. One was Ice TV and the other one was Marae. Uh, so Marae is a long-standing Māori current affairs program. And to be honest, I was really hoping I'd get Ice TV because it would be easier for me, easier on a I guess on an identity level, but of course Petra did and Petra was amazing and that became her career. And so being on Mudai, I, you know, the only thing I could do was be open and honest about where I was at in terms of my identity and lack of understanding of te reo Māori. So I had to learn quite publicly. And one good thing about that is that at that time you didn't see it much on TV and other people could actually relate to it quietly. And then in seeing my progression as it happened, people have said, gosh, I remember when you couldn't speak Māori at all. And so I guess people can feel that they've witnessed that and maybe can relate to it or can just appreciate that obviously it's been years and years of effort. So I've had all of these incredible experiences and interviewed so many amazing people and particularly in people who are practitioners of Māori knowledge and so that all grew and then I did various different courses and and also met my husband through work and then through study as well because he was filling in for my teacher not effectively my teacher so that's fine and that actually became with him our decision to bring our kids up with their old Māori as their first language is really how all of my writing began as well and the success of his books, which weren't necessarily expected at the time, but first one came out 10 years ago, is really what's led on to these opportunities for me and us, I guess, being open and vocal about our advocacy for te reo Māori, but particularly the language of the home. And I think that is where, it's where language starts and such a gift to give your children to have that language from day one. I learned French and German and Spanish at school and mm. you know, even then that experience of learning, you feel it's tough. It's tough learning a language. It's mm. quite exposing. You feel quite vulnerable and for you to go through that on TV but now actually to see for your children that you're giving them that gift that, that they will be able to speak it um, fluently from day one. It's a wonderful gift. Yeah and I do carefully remind them it's a privilege and it's their job also to, to help other people. They do that like even with their koro, with their grandfather, so that they know that it's never something to be wielded against other people, especially other Māori who are struggling trying to learn it And because it, it's not their fault. It's what has been done to the language. Like when you talk about French and German, my husband was in the top stream at high school, so he was offered French and German as a subject option. Whereas when you went down to the lower streams, it wasn't until the lower stream that kids were offered Māori. So what that kind of suggested, apart from what streaming does to kids' consciousness, is it says the value of uh, te reo Māori or the, your ability to be able to pick it up 
is all, all minimised. Like it's just says like a top level student, supposedly more intelligent student will be able to pick up languages that were, you know, basically given more status in our country at that time. What an interesting observation in terms of status. And I think it must be in some ways heartening to see, I feel anyway, that it's changing. Yeah. For sure. It definitely has. And so there's a lot of people who've done work for 40 years, but also beyond to make sure, first of all, that there was a language to preserve and that they committed themselves to intergenerational transmission, which is when grandparents talk to kids and their families maintain a native type of acquisition of te reo Māori. But in terms of the status, it took things like the Māori Language Act, took things like creating the Māori Language Commission, Māori Broadcasting, all of those things have participated and made this change in, in status. But also, I'd have to say that the last five to ten years have been quite a huge difference. And there's a lot of different factors that have contributed to that. But as I say, Scotty writing his book, um, first book 10 years ago, Phrase Book of Modern Māori, and then Māori Made Easy. When he first wrote that book, which is 30 minutes a day, a way to learn Māori self-led, it, it took a while for it to take off. And that was like a year or two before it started selling really well. And that's, I think, I guess, an indicator as well of people getting on board with it and growing in status in lots of different ways. And so it is... It's about the environment for te reo. It's about the status that's given, say, you know, things like Dr. Ashley Bloomfield going tēnā katoa. You know, someone who has a lot of respect like that can achieve a lot for the perception and status of te reo Māori. And tell me, Stacey, but, you know, if you look back a bit in your career now, no career is easy and you've talked about some of the challenges of maybe being in the public eye. What have been some of the toughest or almost challenging times in your career? I think... For me, as a, a mother, working mother, I look back at some of the things I did when my kids were little and I think, oh, my, how did I actually do that? So things like when my son Hawaiki, who's 14 now, when he was born, um, I had three months maternity leave and then I was back into breakfast radio and I was really dedicated to breastfeeding because it, we'd had a good experience and I've been lucky enough that I was able to express milk. So I'd do that about quarter past four in the morning and then I'd go to work and come back and I don't, none of my kids have been great sleepers. So that kind of thing was just a, a real physical challenge, physical and emotional. And then, as I say, he's been one of my greatest teachers because my first child in terms of his seeing the difference of a kid who's picking it up and what good I guess, memory recollection they have so quickly. What meant that I was working hard to make sure I kept up with my toddler and kept in, in ahead of my toddler. But he could remember vocab just so easily, vocab that I'd worked really hard to learn. So I guess there I was working breakfast radio while trying to make sure I could raise my son and second language, which was actually my ancestral language, also doing other things, but trying to kind of make sure, minimise how much more I did. But then also we created a community group, Māori for Grown Ups, and started our play group because we realised we didn't have, I didn't have any friends who could, um, you know, who were on the same buzz as me and wanted to, you know, bringing Māori into their home and not actually outside of the kohanga reo or the um, puna reo, you know, all those things were kind of driving me at the time. So those were just logistics, I guess. Those were hard things about my career. Then also how you are then defined as a woman is different once you're a mother. 
and particularly in media. Uh, I think Hilary Barry speaks about this really well, about the perception of women at a certain age is much heavier judgment than men get. You know, men can be old and, and not particularly telegenic and they still get jobs. But for women, it's it's about being telegenic. It's about not being too mumsy. I mean, I, I have a real issue with how mumsy is considered like a diss. That it should be something to be celebrated. But that juggle, that perception of self, therefore where you fit in a media landscape, the sort of jobs you're going to get, the ones that you're not going to get anymore, how you're perceived and being able to to keep yourself steady amongst all of that. For instance, it's just part of this job that you'll get feedback to say, oh no, they thought that they needed someone more something. Like that's how you win or lose a job. You have to build resilience about that and, and be realistic about whether this job is good for your, you know, how you're going to maintain your good mental health and emotional and spiritual health while you're doing something that actually means that you're judged by people a lot of the time. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting your comments there about about women and how somehow often as, as men get older, they're seen as more expert and whereas women somehow have to have this myth that, no, we don't age, we stay the same. And really interesting observation actually about the word mumsy. I hadn't thought about it, but you're right. How is it naturally? Definitely not a compliment. You know, thank you too for also sharing your those struggles of coming back to work and trying to juggle being a mum, the, the physical, emotional exhaustion of it, but still trying to do a, a great job at home and, and, and at work. And it's, you know, certainly something I know that I very much went through. It's real for for so many women out there. Yeah. And it, it doesn't change. Since then, I've had two more children and it's always a navigation. And I want to make sure that navigation keeps the kids in our whānau at the centre because ultimately if I am not being the parent that I want to be, then I probably won't be the career woman that I want to be either. That's just how, that's my foundation. That's my two papa. And I always think I do the jobs that I do while it works for my whanau. And when it doesn't work for my whanau, then I have to change something. You know, I've got healthy children who are pretty, that, that like they don't have specific learning needs. They have good health. So so all of those things are privileges that allow me to do my job at the moment. But to me, that's something that you're monitoring as a woman anyway. So yeah, they're neurotypical, all of those things. I just think that people, it's really interesting as women, sometimes we're so hard on ourselves, but we need to look at the full picture. If you've got Say if you're a single mum, sometimes we put the expectations on ourselves that we should be doing exactly the same as someone who has financial independence and a supportive husband would be doing. I mean, of course, or wife, it's like completely different playing field that you're coming from. It is, and I think it's a great point about how hard we sometimes are on ourselves as women and but also that kind of comparing ourselves to unrealistic comparisons in some ways rather than focusing on actually what is success, what is a good day, a good week, a good month, a good year even, what does that look like for me given my circumstances? Yeah, great point. And you talked a little bit there about you know, the, the, most the role of as a parent and, and making sure that you're there with your whānau, that kind of comes first. You know, how else do you maintain balance between your career and, and your broader life? Yeah, I well, it's quite blurry because <laughs> it's probably not, I wouldn't say it's so much my job as what I do because fortunately for me, my passions and the things that I'm really interested in and have become my work, I completely understand the the privilege that I have there because not everyone gets to do something they love. 
And then the other thing I have to be mindful of is that it therefore doesn't take up every waking moment of my life because it's what I think about naturally anyway and what I'm interested in. So boundaries are, I wouldn't say I'm amazing at them. (laughs) So for instance, you know, I'm the board chair at my daughter's school. I'm on the Spark Foundation as well. I have other mums going, excuse me, how are you doing all of this? And I don't say that to Skype. I say that to check myself, that I do have high expectations of myself. So I have to make sure that I balance that. And say, for instance, physical exercise is really important to me. And yet I don't want to be brittle about it, to go, I'm going to get in a bad mood unless I get to do my run or unless I get to do my workout. So I try to do as much as I can with my whānau and then I try to be mindful of what my actual needs are, but it doesn't come naturally to me, to be honest. That's something that I have to work on. And I think that's quite normal, that finding some kind of balance is, you know, I don't think it comes naturally, particularly to anyone. And it's something that all of us have to kind of continually work on. But interesting, you talked about that actually the boundaries are a bit blurry. You know, it's just what you do when it's something that you love. And I guess the other thing that I should say around balance is in a spiritual sense and tikanga Māori helps me a lot in that way. And my husband is has been trained in terms of karakia, the deepest kind of variety, to be able to open houses, to be able to do practices that only people who have been highly trained can do. I guess we, that's one thing that we don't often talk about, but Māori are good at talking about is how your spiritual health is part of your full health. And um, Sir Mason Jury, he helped normalise speaking about that because in his model for Māori well for well-being for Māori and for all actually is recognizing that our well-being will be dependent upon not just our physical and mental health but also our social and whānau health how that part of our life is going that includes friends as well and then also our spiritual health so I think that's something that perhaps we don't talk about but if you're, we talk about if your waidu is just feeling a bit down, then of course your soul is, is is kind of taking hits from things like a pandemic, then of course it's going to impact how you're able to operate in the rest of your life. I think it's a really important component. You know, often we think of balance as, you know, if that physical part goes first, you know, oh gosh, have we, have we been outside? Have we done a walk or a run? Then the mental, maybe the emotional, and but the spiritual piece, yeah, is absolutely important, but maybe less talked about. Mm. We talked, Stacey, about some of those tough times, some of the challenging times. If you turn it the other way around, what have been some of your proudest career moments? They're surprising. <laughs> They're surprising to me. If you'd told me that I would have seven books in total that we've you know, made together, Scotty has made, written about three or four of them, maybe five by himself. But, you know, one moment that I really loved, I went into this cafe and this tiny little girl, she's about two years old, and she, you could tell she's very bright, very observant. And she looked at me for just a millisecond and she said, you're the lady from my Māori book. And I thought, oh, that just gave me chills. I felt so excited. I never actually considered that a child would notice the person in the picture in her Māori book, my my first words are Māori. So that was a massive highlight for me. I also have managed the travel that I managed to do all around Aotearoa, also to like to Venice and all sorts of amazing places and China and Russia, all of these things, which now it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it, that you could go to all these places so easily, you know, have been just a real joy, but particularly sharing my story via 
doing it publicly of uh, learning and gaining fluency in Te Reo Māori. I've had a lot of people who've said it, it's meant a lot to them. Sometimes it's really challenged them, um, reminding them that they could maybe do it. And and I would say specifically for Māori, it's a really challenging thing to reclaim a language that resonates in, in your bones and in your body and yet you can't speak it, even though your face kind of suggests that you might be able to. So growing up in Christchurch, I was, it was funny because I thought I was quite dark and it wasn't until I came up here, they went, you know, fierce Māori like you. And I was like, what? Who are they talking about? One of the joys of my career has actually been in the sharing of my story and how people have told me that's impacted them. Even things like we did um, when my mum had breast cancer and subsequently died at 45. We we did a lot of advocacy around it, just asking women to self-check. And after doing a Women's Day article, we heard from a woman who had read that article and cried, which is so kind that people would be so empathetic to cry for someone who they don't actually even know, being our mother. And so she got hold of us to say that she had checked herself and because of that self-check, she'd found a lump, uh, she'd had treatment and that she would get to be with her kids for more years just because of that article. And we met her and we did a, a story with her. And so that to me, it's affirmation. Sometimes you think, oh, my gosh, am I just going on and on about the same things? But when you get that kind of result, and a massive highlight in my career that's actually to do with me but not to do with me, really. And I think it's a good point. It's almost about the impact that you've been, the positive impact you've been able to have on people's lives, whether it is a two-year-old um, or whether it is somebody checking themselves and getting treatment for breast cancer but being able to actually positively impact people's lives. Yeah, super. And where do you see your career heading in the future? I think in line with the rest of my career, it will probably be a matter of organic kind of movement. I think at the moment I'm in a really great place because I still have some flexibility while my kids are at home and at school. So that's that's a priority for me is maintaining that while they still are, live with us and want to be with us. And then... I can see management and I guess hopefully oh, I, I wouldn't call it leadership because I think I, I might be better at leadership than management. But a lot of the things that I'm doing naturally, it just comes down to strategic um, work and planning and, and delivery, which I really enjoy. That's something that I've started to do and I want to do more of. But when it comes to leadership and media, it's quite male dominated. It really is. And we've got a lot of work to do there. So it's really me and many of us deciding, okay, at what point do we want to step away from the camera and go into different roles? I've had this conversation with quite a few women in media and it's really just making a decision of when and how you'll do that. And if you can manage to keep both going on, but the importance of women in leadership in media comes through in editorial, it comes through in what happens in media, and currently it's a pretty male-dominated sector in leadership. Yeah, and it, it is, and I think it's not dissimilar to 
the world of law or traditionally yeah. the world of politics or the world of science even, governance, that those also have traditionally been slightly more male-dominated and that, that actually increasingly there's seen as having a lot of value to have a more gender-balanced approach and, and making sure that the voices and perspectives and ideas and thoughts of women are clearly brought through and in your case in terms of the, the media. Yeah, super. One last question, Stacey. I'd love to hear from you. You know, you've had a really varied career and you know, also being in the public eye and, and having to be quite resilient at times. You know, what advice would you have for other women in terms of their careers? I guess how I would describe what I've done is code switching quite quickly. So in a day, I might do a you know my radio show, but then I might do TV and I might do an in-person kind of MC job, those kind of things. So I guess um, exploring the breadth of what you can do and the way that you want to do it. So that means in terms of either do you want to own your own business or do you want to have a side hustle and have this kind of day job that maintains how you want to, what you need for financial security. So I think it's about thinking about the structure that works for you and whatever you want to accommodate and whether that's your accommodating your own uh, career goals, your own financial goals or if it's Fano goals, all of those things. So really trying to write the script on what sort of structure is going to work for you. And that means that the possibilities are so much better now. And then I always think about women who have championed for women before us and knowing that part of what we do for the people who couldn't possibly have dreamt of doing this. Rather than making that feel pressureful, let's make it feel joyful that we have all of these different opportunities and they are ours and it's up to us to write our script to use a media analogy <laughs> yeah it's a it's a great media analogy actually because there is something about that taking control of your own story your own journey figuring it out what it is that you're good at but I also like the analogy that you made about code switching and actually recognizing almost you know what are your fundamental strengths but how could you apply those in different ways actually at different points in time yeah. along the way in your career just to add to that and also sometimes just really drilling down to what it is you're good at and what those how those skills can be applied in different areas. One thing that I think we really undervalue is being a good listener. Hardly anyone listens. <laughs> That's what I've come to. Listen and observe, actually really important. It's important in what I do. And I think it's important in any job. You know, I notice my kids have good emotional intelligence and they'll pick up what's happening for people that's not being said. Listening, observing, rating what are called soft skills and then understanding where you can apply them to be able to have a great career. Yeah, absolutely. Great advice. And I think that kind of piece of focusing on actually on what you're good at, maybe rather than what you're not so good at and trying to work on those, but, but starting with some things that you're good at. Yeah, interesting observation around listening. And I think nowadays when everybody's in such a hurry and we often listen to listen to respond or listen to make mm. our point, but actually really listening and taking the time to see what's being said, but maybe also what's not being said and to really listen deeply. Absolutely, it's a wonderful skill to uh, to develop and grow over time. Stacey, it's been such a pleasure to speak to you today. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your career and some of your broader thoughts as well. I've really appreciated it. Kate Pai, thank you so much for asking me and, and thank you for this very cool co-papa and opportunity. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Female Career Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. 
For more inspiring stories of women of Aotearoa and their careers, subscribe to the Female Career Podcast via Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you like to listen so that you never miss a story. You can also take a look at our website, thefemalecareer.com, where we feature the stories. And if you subscribe to our mailing list, you can have career advice and inspiration delivered directly to your inbox. Thanks for your support, and I look forward to you joining us again soon.